This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. It being 1 a.m., pursuant to an order made earlier today, it's my duty to interrupt the proceedings and put forth with every question necessary to dispose of the third reading stage of the bill now before the House. The question is as follows. Mr. Gibbo, seconded by Ms. Show moves that Bill C-10, an act to amend the Broadcasting Act and to make uh, related and consequential amendments to other acts, as amended, be read a third time and passed. The Liberal government strategy to push through Bill C-10 bore fruit last week as the controversial Broadcasting Act Reform Bill received House of Commons approval at 1.30 a.m. on Tuesday morning. The parliamentary process took hours as the government passed multiple motions to cut short debate, reinserted amendments that had previously been ruled null and void, and rejected a last-ditch attempt to restore the Section 4.1 safeguards for user-generated content. Bill C-10 proceeded to receive first reading in the Senate later that same day. After a series of Senate maneuvers, it received second reading from Senator Denny Dawson the following day, which sparked Senate debate in which everyone seemed to agree that the bill requires significant study and should not be rubber stamped. Speeches are likely to continue this week, after which the bill will be sent to committee. Given that the committee does not meet in the summer, an election call in the fall would kill Bill C-10. Here to discuss the latest developments is Peter Menzies, a former vice chair of the CRTC and one of the most outspoken experts on Bill C-10. Our conversation reflects on the last two months of the Bill C-10 debate, discusses the concerns regarding CRTC regulation, and explores what comes next. Peter, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, I'm uh, happy to be here as always. Okay, I'm really glad to have you here. So so we're recording this just a couple days after the House of Commons adjourned for the summer in a week when it passed Bill C-10 in the middle of the night as the cloud was winding down on this particular session. Now, the bill's gone to the Senate, where we've already heard a few speeches, including one I thought was a really excellent one from Paula Simons. But this, at this stage, it, it looks fairly certain, you never know with the Senate, but it looks fairly certain, or at least likely, that the bill will be referred to a Senate committee for further study. And given that we don't think that the committee will be meeting over the summer, that suggests that Bill C-10 will be picked up again in the fall if there's no election call. But if there is that election call, then Bill C-10 will die. And so I thought this provides a good opportunity to reflect back on what I think uh, both of us would agree has been a pretty remarkable couple of months. You know, it seems that if we go back to April, this bill looked certain to pass and was not generating much public attention or opposition. And that obviously changed with the removal of Section 4.1 and the application of the statute to user-generated content. Um, I thought it would be fun to have a conversation about what we've experienced over the last couple of months. And why don't we start with this? We've obviously both been very active and vocal on this bill. You know, what stands out to you from the last couple of months in this battle over Bill C-10? I think the thing that stands out the most for me is um, how thin the grasp of many people is of basically what the internet is, as opposed to, you know, broadcasting or even uh, a telephone line or cable. So much of the discussion was uh, 
almost backward looking um, instead of forward looking. And I mean, even people commenting, well, C10 doesn't do this and doesn't do that. And yeah, that's fair enough. But actually, the Broadcasting Act does. And this is an amendment to the Broadcasting Act. So, et cetera, et cetera. I found that, uh, I found that the most frustrating thing, um, which is why Paula Simon's speech came as a, was so refreshing the other day. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. It was, a, it was a breath of fresh air, certainly, I think, to, to have someone inject a, a bit more facts and discussion into this. Yeah, I, how, do we, how do we get past that just as a starting point? You know, I mean, there's, there's, it's clear that, you know, you'll have politicians sometimes from, from all the different stripes, re, you know, retreat to, you know, talking points, the kind of hearings that we saw and debate at times that we saw. Uh, for many of the parties, didn't really really rely, I don't think, on on kind of that deeper understanding of the technology. And certainly it was very much of a backward looking approach, at least that, that would be my perspective. You have, you have thoughts on, on on how that that kind of policy development dynamic might change? Well, I'm kind of hopeful. It's it's nice. Uh, it's nice that there'd be a break. <laughs> um, I think if B cell, B, uh, Bill C-10 dies on the order paper, over the summer, I, I'm not sure even the government will regret it um, because it's been so difficult for them, and uh, I think they've had a difficult difficulty getting their own heads around it and what it and what it means in terms of that. Obviously, the uh, the CanCon lobby um, will be would be disappointed, but I don't think anybody else would be. Um, their thinking did manage to prevail, which is amazing because it hasn't really changed in 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 24 years. I'm hoping, on the other hand, that if there is, you know, if the Senate is resuming and considering it in September, that it will do a thorough vetting of it. I mean, the Senate can still play an intelligent role here. And, you know, emotions die down over the summer. People can be more practical. People can start looking at it. And maybe the Senate can, uh, and the process involved in the Senate can provide some sensible amendments that the government could uh, can consider in terms of narrowing the scope and, uh, you know, at least trying to use some more precise tools to, uh, to get the outcomes they want. I mean, if you, if you want to, you know, if it is what uh, Gilbo has uh, frequently described it as, just an effort to get, you know, online streamers to contribute more money, then just do that. Um, uh, I think the big mistake is, uh, and Paula put it well too, I mean, you're, you're taking a, an institution like the CRTC and giving it this vast, vast scope um, when you don't need to, unless, and if you don't, if that's not really what you want to do, then don't do it. So I don't know, maybe everybody just chills out a little over the summer and uh, becomes a, a little less partisan um, in terms of their approach to it. Yeah, no, you mentioned Senator Simon's speech. There's, there's a few things that, that she that she raises in that speech. I'd encourage people to take the 12 minutes or so to listen to it or watch it on YouTube. I thought it, it, it really does a phenomenal job of raising some of the issues. You know, one of the, the questions that she raised is, you know, precisely, and I'll quote her, where do, precisely where does Canada find the legal authority, the moral right, and most importantly, the practical power to regulate the content of international streaming services that are not broadcast over the Canadian airwaves? What is the legal nexus to regulate or curate programming from international companies? And while I know that some people will take that to suggest you know, that, that the internet is somehow this non-regulable 
no holds barred, no law and lawless environment. I don't think that really that's what she's suggesting. I think she's saying there is a role for law to play, but we also need to recognize the limits of the law. How, how, how do you seek to reconcile some of those tough questions? Because once, you know, once the people started focusing on, on this legislation, I thought one of the things that really did get attention was just that enormous scope as it, as it sought to essentially say that any service anywhere offering up audio or visual services, so long as there was some kind of Canadian connection, would at least in theory be subject to CRTC regulation. Yeah, well, I mean, that's where you first get, the first get the impression when you read something like that, that that's what they want to do. I mean, the first reaction, my first reaction anyway, is these guys don't understand what they're doing, right? They don't, they don't understand the size of this. It's like deciding that, you know, you're going to regulate the universe. Um, you're, you're dealing with something infinite and you're trying to, and you're trying to deal with it with um, uh, a finite set of tools and, a, and, a, and a, a broadcasting act, which deals with a finite world and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, the main giveaway there is, is that these guys, they don't get it. They don't understand the internet in terms of that. And yeah, um, the internet isn't, you know, like people say, well, it's like the wild west, you know, and, blah, 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 blah. And they, you know, it's not. I mean, the law <laughs> applies to the internet, right? It's it's applied. Things you do on the internet must be legal. This is about, you know, the difference between regulating, um, not even regulating. I mean, you, you, have, you have laws that the internet is not allowed to break or people on the internet are not allowed to, to, to do and say and, and that sort of stuff in various countries. Um, but you don't need to do that by regulating the internet. I mean, criminal code applies, civil law, you can't libel people, you can't slander them. I mean, there's, and there's many, you know, we've talked about this before. There's, 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 there's many things that need to be addressed about the internet. It's with us. It's going to be with us for a long time. It's uh, new problems get created, monopolies get created, that sort of stuff. But yeah, I mean, to Senator Simon's point, um, in terms of that, like, hers was a very polite way of sort of saying, who the hell do you think you are, <laughs> you know, that, that you can pull this off. So it's, it, like I said, that's where it's to, to finish where I started. It's like, do you guys really understand the Internet? Yeah, no, I think she even raised that towards the end in a question and answer. You know, what are, what are we doing here in certain respects? You know, the, the other framing that she raised. One was, of course, with respect to the internet itself, but the other was with respect, I thought, even more to cultural policy. And she, she again, raised this question, you know, is, and I'll go, I'll quote, uh, is cultural protection still the fundamental model we wish to employ in 2021? Or do we need a paradigm shift that puts the emphasis on preparing our tech and culture sectors to be robust players on a global stage, taking outstanding Canadian content created in, in French, English, Mandarin, and Niktitut, Punjabi, etc., to the world. You know, in some ways, she's, she's reiterating what actually the former Heritage Minister, Melanie Jolie, talked about with her initial foray into cultural policy. You know, I, I suspect I know the answer, but, you know, where do you see the opportunities from a cultural policy perspective. Do you see the prospect of of that kind of of moving towards the sort of paradigm shift that Senator Simons raises? Well, that was what was so disappointing about C10 and before that the BTLR um, outcomes that it became this. We have to, you know, like we're we're going to modernize Canada's communications policy by by modernizing the Broadcasting Act. When there there was this wonderful opportunity 
here to, to really take a look at, at some of the issues that you just raised there. Like, um, you know, why would a system that was designed for, you know, the 1980s make sense in 2021? How can we, how can we own the internet? You know, go back to that CRTC report, which was, you know, even entitled, uh, you know, harnessing change, right? You know, it, rather than, you know, like, um, achieving great things through change or, or something like that. Like, how do we become, how do we build a bigger, better model and that sort of stuff? There, there was no imagination. There was just, to me, it seemed like the government was just captive to one certain lobby group and, and perspective that was very regressive in its approach, you know, that everything is broadcasting, right? And this is how we must do it. I mean, that. The original system was designed to, you know, basically because people could watch TV from the states in Toronto, um, and 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 you're protecting protecting people from that. And you know, it, if you've only got one source coming in, it's, and it's from a giant the size of the United States, and there's definite issues there where Canadian broadcasters can buy American programming at ten cents on the dollar, and and that sort of stuff. You know, there's there's huge issues there, but. The other side is just this opportunity it creates, you know, like how many people were actually achieving the objectives of the Broadcasting Act without being licensed, without being captured, without being regulated by the CRTC. I remember meeting a guy uh, several years ago now and he was talking about, um, he did a lot of, uh, uh, he's a sort of a South Asian uh, specialty channel and uh, he did a lot of work and he was talking about you know, um, he said, why, well, why do you do so much programming in English, right? Why, why isn't it all in Punjabi or something like that? And he, and he said, well, I, you know, because he was talking about designing it for export as well. And he said, well, there's 125 million Anglophones in India, right? Um, which is, you know, <clears throat> five times as many as there are in Canada. So, you know, these are the markets that are out there and you're not just telling Canada's stories to Canadians, but you're telling them to the world, right? So people could actually be successful, but psychologically, so much of the industry is just comfortable in this cocoon that it's built. And I find that kind of sad. I really, I really do, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of smart people. There's a lot of good creative people in the country and to, to not get excited about the internet and say, oh boy, you know, what can we do with this um, is uh, kind of shocking from a government that fancies itself as being the most progressive in history. Yeah, no, I think that I think we started to hear some of those voices towards the end of the this process just now. Hopefully they'll have a chance to be heard if, if this does go to go to hearings. You know, most uh, much of your contribution focused on the CRTC, or at least uh, a lot of people were interested in the fact that a former vice chair of the CRTC would be speaking out in, in the way that you did. You know, is the CRTC, again, there's a sense based on your public comments, is the CRTC the right venue for this? Or even more, I suppose, is it capable of addressing these issues? And if not, what needs to change? Or is it simply the case that it's this is just an ill-fitting regulator for the kinds of issues that uh, the government entertains in the bill? Yeah, I don't think, I mean, I don't think the CRTC, um, I mean, the CRTC, one of the, you know, BTLR recommendations was that you can create a new Canadian Communications Commission. And I think it's time for that. Um, the CRTC is not bad at a lot of the things it does. It's pretty good at, pretty good at many 
of those sorts of things, but it was created for an entirely different purpose. Um, then and the different different systems, closed systems, one-way systems, all kinds of differences, um, and you know, control of speech systems. Um, you know, like people sort of say, well, C10 doesn't, you know, regulate speech. Well, the CRTC does though. Um, I mean, that's kind of all it does. It's kind of its purpose is to regulate a certain type of content. The licenses all have detail about that. And you know, and it's not, it's when they do that, it's transactional. Right, it's between the, the applicant for the license and and the CRTC, and it's public property, and you can make those deals or you can reject them. Um, being able for it to be able to culturally and intellectually get its head around those differences and try to apply that general mentality and mission to something like the internet, which is so different, I think is a huge challenge. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know how you take it to to a group of people in the broadcasting division and say, "Okay, you know, here's the regulation. Here's how we regulate religious channels, for instance, right? How are we going to apply that to the internet? Well, you can't. <laughs> I mean, it just becomes impractical without deregulating to a certain extent some of the stuff you do on broadcasting. So. The confusion that it would create, I think, inside there, where you're trying to, where you're trying to apply, uh, apply a set of rules designed for one thing um, to another thing that doesn't fit, um, would be monstrous, and the, uh, and it would bog down um, the CRTC for ages and ages. So, um, creating something brand new, um, uh, if you're gonna, if, if you're gonna get into regulating the internet. Be very specific about it, um, and create a, an entirely new culture. I think would be the would be the way to go. Yeah, no, it's interesting that uh, that you talk about sort of that that difference, different approach, at least in terms of the the regulatory side. You did just reference the the fact that, of course, there are all those regulations for the existing broadcasters. Now, I've I've argued that 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 the the arguments around or the claims around a level playing field have never been. Um, entirely forthcoming, or certainly not accurate, I don't think, that there are an assortment of advantages that the regulated sector has when they get those licenses, that this is a bit of a, a quid pro quo. You you get the hundreds of millions in in benefits, let's say, that come from simultaneous substitution and the must-carry rules so that everybody's paying for certain channels when they get these packages, even if they don't necessarily want them for the most part, or they may want them, but they may not. It's all just part of the deal. And so uh, in return for some of those benefits, you make some payments and there's a contribution back, which I, I never thought really applied in the same way to the online environment. But certainly there are, you, you do get some that will say, you know, if the internet if these internet-based services are not going to be regulated, neither should we. Um, where do you see this going? Do you see sort of this the continued push for take the old existing rules to the internet? Do you see the opposite saying basically fine if there's no internet regulations, we'll we'll deregulate the remaining space? Or do you think we can have a, a bit of a coexistence between uh, the two, where there are rules that apply to the internet, but they're not the same rules that apply to the conventional broadcasting sector? Well, I mean, it depends, you know, precisely what you want to get it from the internet. If it was as simple as as Minister Gilbo had uh, suggested many times, we just want to make sure we, that that those those guys are contributing to the to the creation of Canadian film and and television, right? 
Um, I mean, there's a good argument that they already are um, spending tons of money creating Canadian. I mean, the Canadian film and television industry is doing very well. And one of the reasons it's doing very well is because of streamers. Um, you could, it'd be easy enough to, to, to create something where let's take a look at it and find out if they're contributing. And then, then if you wanted to, you could say, okay, well, as long as you're going to operate here, we want to make sure that you're contributing what you are um, and you are, and you don't even have to fuss about whether it goes through a fund or not. Just how much are you spending in Canada? Um, roughly. I mean, I'm being a little facetious there, but, but you could manage things that way um, because there's arguments and they're, and you know, I'm sympathetic with many of them. Like you, you can't just take money out of this country and not leave anything behind. You wouldn't let any other industry do that in terms of taxes or, um, investment or any anything like that so you can take that approach and simplify it i think and then everything goes ahead or you can actually i mean i mean the, the other option would be if you want to level the playing field why does it have to be with making everybody's burden as heavy as the current burden is why not lighten the load on um some of the people within the system um, in terms, in terms of that, I don't think that option was, has even been examined. Um, and then the, the the other option is to just is is to take the current rules and try to apply it to the internet as if the internet is broadcasting. And I'm afraid that it's that last one that they seem to be trying to do because basically what they're saying is that the internet is broadcasting, um, which it isn't, <laughs> right? But as long as they think that it is. They must think that the rules they apply to broadcasting can be applied to the internet. And that just, there's no way that ends well. Um, it, it, it would just end in chaos in, 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 in terms of that because the CRTC um, just isn't equipped for that. You know, I, I think you may have just answered uh, my next question, but uh, I'll ask it anyway. You know, let's say the Senate does hold some hearings. So that election call that everyone's expecting doesn't come and the review of C-10 continues um, and the committee hopefully makes a point of, of hearing from many voices that were omitted uh, during the House of Commons hearings. And there is a long list from consumer groups to digital first creators to, uh, frankly, people like yourself. Uh, so let's say they ask you to appear. You become really a vocal part of the C-10 debate. Uh, you know, what do you tell them if uh, you had that opportunity to appear before the committee? Well, I mean, I would tell them that they should reject the bill because it's it's poorly founded. But if they're going to, um, uh, if it's going to pass, uh, the best thing is to narrow its focus, make it precise, understand its, get clarity on the purpose, um, uh, the purpose of the amendments to the Broadcasting Act, and carve out from the internet the sector that you want to. To regulate. So if you, for instance, be precise, say we, and you know, pick a number, but this will only apply to um, streaming companies with uh, revenues of more than, I don't know, 100 million, 80 million. Um, the web giant Skillbo talks about, right? So this will only apply to them. And the purpose of this is to make sure that they are um, investing um, or spending a certain amount of, uh, 
uh, of, of money in the Canadian film and television industry. Mm. And you can keep it as simple as that. You, you, and the, you don't really need um, a vast amount of regulation to do that. I mean, the CRTC's got 4 million extra bucks in this year's budget alone just to figure out how many, many more millions of dollars it would need to, you know, regulate the infinity of the internet. So just make it simple for everybody. Narrow the focus. Say, this is what we want to do. What's the purpose of it? We want to get the big guys who are taking lots of money out of Canada. We want to make sure that they're investing money in Canada. And at the end of it, today, they might look at it and say, hey, it's working just fine. Let's just keep going like we're doing, roughly. Um, and uh, because largely C10 is a solution in search of problem, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you raise the the need to put some thresholds into the bill, be, be, be more explicit about it. That I know was, that was certainly one of the issues that I that I'd raised right off the top, that this, that if anything, I thought the bill always created way too much uncertainty within the sector, leaving so much to the CRTC to decide. And at first the government said, well, you know, we're going to provide more detail in a policy directive. But once, once at least a draft of that policy directive was made available, when the committee said, hey, you know, you know since you've only provided half the bill, let's see the other half in the policy directive, it didn't provide really much more certainty at all. There was very little in the way of, of information <laughs> on what those thresholds would look like. You know, I know so- it was shocking, wasn't it? It was re- it was remarkable to see how how little guidance was being provided. You know, you sat on the CRTC for years. You know, I guess how how, how do you see the how do you think the CRTC manages in that kind of environment where it becomes fairly close to a blank slate in terms of, a, of the lack of direction or specificity that's coming out of the legislation or being provided by the government? Well, I mean, people have to be practical, and the CRTC people can be practical. I mean, I expect that. My guess is, uh, based on my experience, is people would look at it at first and say, "Okay, we have to, uh, we have to create this, carve this up, and put it into digestible uh, bite sizes, um, and that sort of stuff." So, if the government didn't, I would think that the first thing the CRTC would do would go in and and narrow its own scope and focus. Um, it would have to go through a consultation process, though, to do that. Um, and you know, that would, that would take, that would take a certain amount, that would take a certain amount of time to, to, to sort that out. Um, the problem with having the broad scope is that there will always be one group or another somewhere who can benefit from the widening of the scope. Um, and so they will, um, as we have seen, um, inevitably wear them down. They will show up at hearings and say, yeah, you, you know, you've said this is only applies to people with $100 million or more in revenue or whatever. Here's some reasons why um, it should apply to people with $50 million, right? Or you've narrowed it uh, in this way and people will continue. And, and what you'll, you'll get is, uh, you know, scope creep um, in terms of that that'll just... It's, it's inevitable, it, it, you know, the broader you're, unless your legislation really shows where the fences are, people will spend a lot of time taking those fences down and it will just happen, you know, inch by inch. That's a, that's a really important observation. And, and I, I think in some ways it applies not just to what that process would look like at the CRTC, where those with the most at stake will be the ones that uh, show up and make the biggest commitment to doing so in terms of financially benefiting. But the, the, the impact is so disparately felt 
amongst individual Canadians that, that most will not bother to take the time to show up. And in some ways, uh, the same thing takes place in the policymaking realm, right? I mean, the minister never fails or failed to reference, you know, a series of lobby groups that were supportive of the legislation. Well, no surprise. They thought they were um, going to get big checks coming out of this to help fund their activity. And that would ultimately be paid by consumers. And so millions of Canadians would be affected, but it's much tougher to get Canadians, individual Canadians to speak out again and again and again. And, and we learned that they are willing to speak out. Um, and sometimes it's for on the consumer side, but it's also very much when it comes to freedom, the freedom of expression concerns where, you know, there's a willingness to regulate. But if you start really limiting the kinds of things I get to see on my service or the you, in, you impose a new regulator that's going to have the, the kind of role that we've been talking about, it's quite clear that's going to raise objections. You know, how, have any thoughts, especially at a CRTC level, about how we go about ensuring a more representative discussion? It was, I think, frustrating for many throughout this policymaking process where, as I say, the minister kept referencing the same groups again, and you had a lot of other groups who were never heard from. Uh, and oftentimes we're really deeply concerned with this legislation, but of course the minister didn't take the time to reference them, much less show any interest in what they had to say. Well, yeah, I mean, as, as we've seen or has been discussed uh, regarding uh, other decisions, there's, there's, a, there's a systemic bias. Um, it's not intended, but it's built up over the years. Um, so when the CRTC holds a process, you know, sort of posts a notice of consultation or something like that, or public notice of public hearing. Um, you know, nobody pays any attention to that other than the usual suspects, right? Um, the people who are um, stakeholders in the system, um, the people who are going to uh, contribute to the system. Uh, I mean, uh, to the uh, to the hearing, um, create the record. Um, which is very important for staff at the CRTC to try to have a full record and that sort of stuff. But most of the people who are going to show up um, live within a half day's drive of Ottawa and they will be there. I mean, you saw that in the, the setup with the BTLR panel itself. Um, you know, Hank Infant was the only, the only one who didn't live within a half day's drive of Ottawa. Um, and that's not nothing against the people who do. It's just that's not very representative of a really big country. Right? So until the CRTC actually starts, like it used to do this quite a bit. Um, Conrad was pretty good about that. Like when Shaw was taking over Global, the hearing was held in Calgary. Um, when we did a, um, I remember kind of stomping my feet and talking him into holding the uh, Northwest Tell hearing. We had it in uh had it in Yellowknife, and later we did another Northwest Tell hearing in Inuvik and then Whitehorse. And it makes a difference, right? Um, location makes a difference to your point of view um, in terms of that, your understanding of issues. You know, when people talk about um, being remote, um, and it's one thing to conceive it intellectually. It's another thing to get on a plane in Yellowknife and fly for two and a half hours north before you land and, and, have, and have looked at all that territory underneath you and the mountains and valleys and rivers. And you go, okay, I think I'm getting this remote thing. You know, like it, it makes a huge difference. So it's, it's incumbent upon organizations like the CRTC, whether it's, uh, you know, 
competitor access rates or something like that to make sure you hear from everybody you hear from them and understand that you got to get off your backside in Gatineau and get out and see the country a little bit. You're, if you're going to be in Gatineau, all you're going to hear from is Bell and Rogers and uh, and Videotron and Actra and Les Artistes and everybody all, all the same. If you get out and move it around, um, you got to invest in it. Um, that's uh, if you move around, you're going to get a full record. Because nobody here, like out west, I'm in Regina today. Like, it's uh, nobody here really cares about the CRTC or has heard of the CRTC. Nobody's going to bother, you know, getting on a plane and going down there and talk to them, right? Um, CRTC is kind of a big deal in Ottawa, but that's kind of the only place where it is. Okay, it is, and it is a big deal there, and certainly in the. I think in the Toronto Quebec corridor, it plays a role too. You know, why don't we, why don't we close with this? You know, you talk about different regions and their different perspectives on, on some of these issues. You know, there was a perception amongst many that, you know, the government's determination to at a minimum, get this bill through the house of commons and to do so, even if it meant stifling debate, even if it meant overruling the chair and passing a whole series of amendments that had never been made public, much less read into the record so that people would understand what MPs were voting on. You know, so they, they were willing to throw out a lot of kinds of things that uh, I thought that they once said was was central to a foundational democracy. Um, clearly, they thought there was some political benefit for doing so. Um, and, you know, the perception is that this is an issue that plays well in Quebec and perhaps less well in the rest of the country. So, as I say, why don't we close with this? You know, what's, what's your view on, on first, whether or not we see these kinds of issues become part of the electoral discussion, the election campaign, if there is one early in the fall? And I guess, secondly, you know, your thoughts on sort of the differences across the country. Say, so get out and let's see the different parts of the country. There is a sense that even the perspective on the very issues we're talking about, like Bill C-10, are viewed differently in different parts of the country. Yeah, um, it's certainly they're viewed differently in different parts of the country. And, and But it's not just all geography, I sh- should add it. There's people who aren't organized, right? Like... The YouTubers and and that sort of stuff. There, I mean, there, there isn't an, an association. There isn't a, a guild. They don't have a formal lobby group. These are the people who are who are typically become disenfranchised by the system. Um, they're too busy out there creating <laughs> and trying to make money and doing things like that to be bothered with all this all this regulatory nonsense. So that's where I mean the Senate could could come in and and that's where further consultation could be required. Like I I think originally with Bill C10, like even the conservatives were largely on side with um, if not with the specifics, but with the general approach that, you know, playing field must be balanced on that sort of stuff. And I think that's mostly because, you know, they get lobbied by a group that comes in and they say, we represent two hundred thousand uh, uh, artists and creators and that sort of stuff. And you think that that's all there is, right? So the organized group comes in and says it represents everybody and you believe them and they seem to have a consensus viewpoint and you don't see that there could possibly be anything contentious in that. And so this process, like over the summer and further, all of a sudden people pop up and go, hey, what about me? Hey, whoa, wait a second. What are you doing here? Like, you know, there's 106, there might be 200,000 of them, but there's almost 200,000 people who are uploading things to YouTube and that sort of stuff. And you, you get a, 
an entirely different perspective. And I think that to sort of segue, I think that's where the conservatives must have seen the political opportunity in, in terms of this, um, that there's a constituency that they discovered um, late in the day, but good for them, they, they, they did discover it, um, that, that was going to be um, negatively impacted by this um, and unnecessarily so. And, uh, and, and probably a certain constituency of their own that uh, at their base that had concerns about uh, the freedom of expression and um, suspicions, suspicions on that. The end result seems to have been that, that both the conservatives and the liberals seem quite comfortable campaigning around this. Um, I think the liberals are, um, see the, uh, one of the barriers to the gaining a, a majority as being the Bloc Québécois in, uh, um, throughout Quebec and particularly in um, heavily francophone writings. Um, and this sort of bill, this, uh, this sort of protectionism is a tradition that is hundreds of years old in Quebec, preservationism, existentialist angst, um, perfectly understandable, um, but quite different than in English Canada. And so I think primarily there it's about being not letting the block um, out protect them, that they have to show that they can be more protective of Francophone Canada than the block um, in terms of that. Um, I mean, in the meantime, they can portray the conservatives as, you know, anti-Diluvian knuckle draggers, but they would be doing that anyway um, in, in, in terms of that sort of stuff. And for the conservatives, um, they can see themselves as, you know, uh, people fighting for personal liberties and that sort of stuff, and uh, both in Quebec and outside, um, and try to cover themselves with that. So it seems like politically, both of them think um, they can uh, use Bill C-10 to their political advantage, which doesn't necessarily make for great legislation. <laughs> No, it doesn't. But it does suggest that that in some ways we haven't heard from the, the last of Bill C-10, if, if, even if the bill itself doesn't go forward with an election call, uh, it could well become part of the discourse throughout the campaign. So th thanks for the work that you've been doing. And uh, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, thanks for uh, bringing me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, I really appreciate uh, the knowledge that you've brought to this conversation. And I know you've put in uh, hard work. You've basically been a um, you've been the guy reporting on it every day, and that's really helped keep the public informed. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thank you.